Greetings. Welcome to another edition of White's Run Baptist Church Online. I am Eric Newcomer, and today we're going to be taking our message from Deuteronomy chapter 30. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30 if you have a copy of God's Word, and if not, you can go to the notes page on our blog site, and you can follow along there using the hyperlinks. Uh, we're still continuing a series that's called Beginnings, and Beginnings is a series of sermons that's just from the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Pentateuch. And it's designed to give a foundation for all faith and study in the Bible concerning the, the covenant that's kind of centered around the covenants of God and and who eventually fulfills those covenants, Jesus Christ. So our intention is to give us an overall understanding of the Bible in such a way that we can know our Savior and know him well. I'm excited about what we're going to learn today because the pieces should really start falling into place for us. Because what we're going to see today in Deuteronomy chapter 30 is we're seeing the Israelites prepare to enter the promised land. And what we're going to do is we're going to see that through their covenant that God makes with them and the blessings and curses of their life in that land, uh, there's a great revelation of how God works and what it is that he is up to. And so we're going to take a look at a few verses in Deuteronomy 30 today, but to bring us up to speed, here we are in the Bible. God has made everything. In the book of Genesis, he made a covenant with mankind through Adam and then reiterated it through Noah. And, you know, of course, Adam and Eve sinned and God right away promises that one's going to come along who's going to correct that. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so everything then through the rest of scripture is viewed through that. How is God doing this? And when is this one going to come? And where is he going to come from? And that is the tension of the entire Old Testament, really. Well, we saw that uh, sin abounded after the, the original sin in the garden, that God had to flood the earth, start over with Noah, reiterate the covenant. Then mankind, uh, assembled in the plain of Shinar, built a city and a tower to make a name for themselves. God says, that's not how we're going to do it. I told you to uh, be fruitful and multiply. So God confused their languages. Now we've got all these nations. God looks around at all these nations and he takes one, this man named Abram, gives him some promises, says, I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to give you that, your descendants, that land. I'm going to make you numerous in your descendants. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so this gives us the people of Israel. There's Abraham and his son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, who God renames as Israel. He has 12 sons and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So they go into captivity in Egypt for a while. Uh, while God builds them up to be a great nation. And then in the book of Exodus, he brings them out of Egypt with uh, great miraculous signs and wonders and everything, brings them out of very numerous people, and now they're wandering around the wilderness. So the rest of the book of Exodus is him giving them laws that they're going to do. If they're going to be his people, they're going to they're going to act like his people. So he gives them laws and he teaches them to build a tabernacle. That's a way to worship him. He prescribes all these worship techniques and everything and the priesthood in the book of Leviticus. And then the book of Numbers, the fourth book, um, becomes a, a lot more narrative. They send people in to spy out the land and they come back with a bad report. They don't go into the land. Uh, God is angry with their lack of faith. He sentences them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And now we come to the book of Deuteronomy. They're done wandering. 
It's time to go into the land. They're on their final approach. They're approaching the land of Israel from the south and from the east, and they encounter their first battles on that side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan against the king of uh, Sihon, the king of Og, and they defeat them. And now they kind of take a breather here in the book of Deuteronomy. They've defeated these two kings. They're near the Jordan River. They're getting ready to cross over into this promised land that God's been talking to them about literally for centuries. And they're getting ready to go in, but now there's kind of an inhale before this exciting book of Joshua in which God takes time to reiterate all the law with them. So through Moses, Moses retells them all the laws and everything that God expects of them with a little more commentary. This time, in the hindsight of the time they've spent with God already in the wilderness. So the terms then of their life in this land, how it's going to go, are really laid out in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 in what's known as the blessings and the curses. God prescribed for them a worship service that once they got into the land and he would show them the place, there were these two mountains opposite each other with a valley in between, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And they were to stand half of them on one mountain, half on the other, the Levites down there in the middle. And they were going to recite all these blessings and these curses that God has told them. And the blessings and the curses are basically this. The blessings are all the good things that would happen to them if they obeyed God and stayed faithful while they were there in the land. The curses are basically then the bad things that would happen to them if they would not stay faithful to God, if they would partake in idolatry or the religions of the land or or just you know, forsake God's ways and try to live their own way. These were the bad things that would come upon them while they were living in the land. And we're going to see that it's critical to understanding the entire Old Testament by understanding these chapters. Deuteronomy lays out the plot of the rest of the Old Testament, and Israel lives out these blessings and their curses, and they test them both to the extreme, (laughs) and they see that God keeps his word. They eventually test him on the curses to the point of exile in which they actually forfeit the land and God takes them out. But because of God's promises that he gave beforehand to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, and because of the opportunity for repentance of these exiles, once they're out of the land, he returns them to the land. And listen here to Deuteronomy 30, how after telling them all this, He's going to sum up, indeed, what he has done. So let's go look at the scriptures together. Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 15. He says, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess." 
I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. Well, it's fitting that we would begin with a word of prayer. Father God, these words today are profound. They are literally life and death that you speak here. And I pray, therefore, that we would understand these, that we would understand the profound importance of these and understand not just what they meant to the people at that time, but, Lord, what they show us about the nature of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, you'll grant us understanding this day and you'll show us your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there we have it, uh, an interesting summary. He says, basically, I'm laying it out. I've got life and death, you choose. Now, the fascinating thing about this, that there's a very similar invitation at the end of the book of Joshua, where Joshua addresses the people. This time it's Moses, and right after this, Joshua takes over, and the book of Joshua begins the conquest of the promised land. And at the end of the book of Joshua, after they've settled in the land, they've cleaned most of the land out, Joshua says, Look, it's, I'm laying life and death before you today, therefore choose life. And they go, yeah, we'll choose life. We'll do all that the Lord told us. And Joshua ends with saying, yeah, but you won't, and you're not able to. And so it's kind of, kind of a downer, honestly, but it's true. And that's kind of the point of the Old Testament and the law and this whole adventure of them into the promised land is the total inability of man to complete, comply with God without God doing something. And that's where the new covenant comes in, the, the idea that he can actually change our hearts, that we would be born again from the inside out. That's the difference between the Christian religion and, frankly, every other religion in the world, including distortions of the Christian religion, is that the new covenant says that God will cause us to be born again and change us from the inside out simply by our faith in Jesus Christ. So this lays out, as you can see, some major themes of the Old Testament. What you're going to see as you read the rest of the Old Testament from this point forward is Israel's struggle to be faithful in the covenant. And you're going to see right alongside that God's continued faithfulness to bring the blessings and the curses to Israel. Now, it might seem strange to say God's faithfulness to bring curses, but after all, isn't a curse a promise, just like a blessing's a promise? And when he brings the curses upon Israel, some or many, or sometimes all of them, repent and turn back to him, and then he's able to bless them again. So it, he must fulfill his curses in order that he may fulfill the blessings. And so indeed, he's, he's faithful all along to fulfill both. Uh, the people of Israel struggle with their faithfulness. But all along, we see God's plan to bring one who will ultimately fulfill all faithfulness for the people of Israel and will lead them in great power and indeed all the nations of the earth. That one's known as a, the Messiah. And of course, that is Jesus Christ, which Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, 
the chosen one, the anointed one. So these first five books then really set the plot for the rest of the Bible. And so you can look at these things as you can summarize the books of the Old Testament according to these themes. You can look at the Pentateuch, which is the first five we've been studying together, uh, also known as the law or the Torah. And that there, God creates man, man sins. God begins a plan to reverse the effects of that sin by choosing a covenant people and setting them apart for his purposes in the world. And the books of history, which would be Joshua through Esther, Israel comes into the land. They struggle to fulfill the terms of their covenant with God while he lays the groundwork to bring forth the Messiah. Israel is eventually exiled from the land, but returned to the land by God to wait for their Messiah. The books of wisdom, you've got Job through Song of Solomon there. These are deeply theological works, and they're, they're very philosophical as well, and they reveal God's character and his ways and the ways of his faithful people. The prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, major and minor prophets as we call them, not because of their importance, but because of the re relative length, the prophets contain pronouncements of judgment upon Israel and other nations. They also contain revelations of God and his ways and many predictions of future events, hundreds of which have already been fulfilled and more awaiting fulfillment. And most importantly, the prophets contain much encouragement and description of this future leader, this future Messiah that would come to redeem all of Israel and indeed the world. So you can see a better uh, summary than, than I've provided you in, in a study Bible or something like that, but understand that the Old Testament is only the beginning. In fact, if the Old Testament is all that there was, it would certainly be a, a gripping and epic adventure. It would certainly give a, a, give a great deal of wisdom and life lessons to help someone live a good life it would be a revelation of God and a revelation of man all by itself. But couldn't God have just told us all those things and not have to act it out through the people of Israel over the course of some 1,500 years or so? Why fuss with these people all this time? Because what you see from here through the rest is exceedingly painful for the people of Israel, but even more so for God himself as he struggles with these people that he has done so much for, that he truly loves and he's given tremendous promises to. He's laid life before them. And by and large, most of the time they seem to reject it. Why would he do all that? Unless he's up to something bigger. See, the Old Testament, the reason why there's a new is all through the Old Testament, God was up to something greater. He's making a case for what he's doing. He's making a history through which to bring his plan. His plan to save humanity, it turns out, is a plan that is based upon his grace and the faith of those he would save. So, in order for him to have a salvation plan based on faith and based upon faith in him and his ability and willingness to keep his promises, uh, 
He has to make a full record of his faithfulness. In other words, God's building a resume here for Jesus Christ so that when he comes, we can trust him. We can believe in him. The people of Israel can recognize him by all that has been written over these centuries about him. So he does all this and then brings Jesus Christ to fulfill it. All these prophecies, all these typologies we've looked at, all these principles, all these terms of the covenant which Jesus Christ fulfills, everywhere where man has failed, Jesus Christ is going to succeed in all of the covenants all the way back to Adam. So it's very exciting to understand the purpose of the Old Testament. It's going to bring forth Jesus Christ in a way that it is unmistakably him, that there's no way anyone else in the world could have claimed to be him, could have done what he did, could have fulfilled all the scriptures perfectly as he did. And then he is presented before the entire world as crucified to pay the price for sins and making the case that that is our ultimate problem. If the Old Testament teaches you nothing else, you should understand that through the people of Israel and the people that preceded them, that the number one problem of humanity is sin. It's not the wrong form of government. It's not the wrong philosophy of life. It's none of those things. It is sin, plain and simple, is our number one problem. And that's what Jesus Christ presenting himself to the world as crucified shows. And then Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead as evidence of what he offers, which of course is life itself. Now look back at the offer here again in Deuteronomy 30 verse 15, a concise summary right here. He says right here, see, I have set before you today life and good death, and evil. If these conditions of living in the land is all that there was to the deal, God could have just said, look, here's your choice. You can go in there and have a good life or you can go in there and bad, have a bad life. But that's not what he said. He said, I'm laying here before you today, life and good, death and evil. In other words, the stakes were higher than merely how their life was going to be. Standing there that day, waiting to go into the promised land, God is offering eternal life in Jesus Christ. And you're looking at the verse right now going, wait a minute, Jesus' name isn't there. Jesus, you know, this has said nothing about him so far. The same life that that God offers in the new covenant is offered right here in the old covenant, right here to the people of Israel, because here's how we understand it and, and understand it this way. If they believed God about all these blessings and curses, they were really believing in Jesus Christ because it is Jesus Christ who ultimately fulfills all of those things. You might remember a verse in the New Testament. Let me take you there momentarily. Matthew 5, 17 in the Sermon on the Mount, which is really key and kind of parallel to what we're reading here in the end of Deuteronomy. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not think 
that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus fulfills the law. So if in the Old Testament they're believing this law and they express that belief, they show their belief by obeying him, then they've believed in Jesus Christ. And they've believed him in such a way that they not just believed who he is, but they seriously believed it to the point of action. This is salvation of the New Testament style. This is the salvation as it's put forth by Paul in the book of Romans, by Jesus in the Gospels. This is salvation to believe Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, they had that opportunity to believe, although they did not know his name, to believe in these promises of God, to believe in the covenant with God, that God was faithful to do all this. And he is faithful to do it all, and he has done it all in Jesus Christ. He offers it now in the new covenant. That's the lesson of the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that all these people, and it, it lists there a bunch of faithful Old Testament people, they believed in the promises of God, and not a one of them were perfect. Some of the people on that list are did despicable things, and yet they made the list for one reason and one reason only. They believed God enough to take action. The action proved the genuineness of their faith. And that is what Hebrews 11 is about, that these people were faithful, that they are the ones that we will see in heaven. There's a list of people we'll meet in heaven in Hebrews chapter 11. It's so exciting. But right here, God holds his hands out to these people, says, I'm offering you life or death. I'm offering you good or evil. And, and it's right here for the taking. Right before these verses, he says, and these things I'm commanding you, they're not so difficult that they're unachievable. You know, God, God didn't ask them to get 36 on their ACT or to get straight A's in school. He didn't do any of those things. He didn't, he didn't give them any rules that were going to be impossible for them to follow. They were all things that were within their physical and mental ability to do. So the question becomes, why didn't they do them? Well, let's turn that question around on ourselves. Why don't we do them? See, that's the evidence right there, is that we're, we're incapable of doing those things. But we are capable of believing in Jesus Christ. So the question comes, how do we apply these things to us today? How do we, how do we understand what we've learned here today? I want to uh, show you uh, just a couple applications here. First of all, this, understand that the Old Testament lays the groundwork for Jesus Christ. It lays the groundwork for him to prove his identity. And it lays the groundwork for his people to understand who he is and what he's done. Those, those two things are powerfully important for us to understand about the Old Testament. It lays the groundwork. But what else is there? God makes a lot of promises here, both good and bad to these people of Israel. And all of these things that he says in Deuteronomy chapters 27, kind of starts in 26, where all the people agree to do them. And 27 and 28, all these blessings and curses, both good and bad, they are all conditional. They all hold the qualifier of in the land. In other words, 
If they obeyed God, they would have good times in the land. If they would disobey God, they would have bad times in the land. But underlying it all were those unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As a matter of fact, God takes the time, and the cross-reference is in your notes. I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 9. God takes the time to tell the people of Israel, look, you're not going into the promised land because you're so good. He uses the word righteous. He goes, you're not going in because of your own righteousness. You're going in because of promises I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because those people in there I've decided deserve my judgment. Yeah. Part of the purpose of Israel going into the promised land is to judge the people there. People say, you know, criticize the Bible. Well, that's just not fair that God would, you know, send Israel in there to wipe these people out. That's genocide. That's that's a terrible God. God gave these people hundreds of years to straighten up. And just a couple chapters into the book of Joshua, you find out he is still offering grace to them. The spies go into the land. They meet, of all people, a prostitute named Rahab. Rahab knows who they are. She knows why they are there, which means the other people in the land knew who they were and why they were there. And she says, I believe you and I'm afraid of your God. We're all afraid of your God, but I'm like really afraid and I'm willing to help you. And she actually helps them. And so she and her family are saved through the siege of Jericho, through the destruction of Jericho. Because why? Because she believes she shows up in the New Testament as one of the faithful in Hebrews 11, but also as being in the very lineage of Jesus Christ himself. And so, you know, God had multiple purposes in bringing them in, but the one purpose he's very careful to say, I'm not bringing you in for is their own righteousness. They weren't a perfect people and they show it over the next books of the Bible. And so indeed, how does that apply then to us? Well, are any of us perfect? Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. Certainly not. But God makes these tremendous promises and the Old Testament shows that he keeps them. So the first thing I want to point out is this. I want to point out that God is faithful to keep all of his promises. God is faithful to keep all of his promises. Now, some of our promises in the New Testament include salvation, his presence. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He promises the Holy Spirit, another comforter like himself, would come alongside and, and bring things to remembrance for us and teach us and guide us into truth and, and give us what to say when we're called before authorities. All those wonderful promises like that. Uh, they also uh, Jesus Christ also promises for his people provision. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, he says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and he'll give you the necessities of life, what to wear, where to live, what to eat. He's going to give those things to you. They're, they're, he doesn't promise lavishness, but he promises those things. He promises sanctification. He says very plainly that his will for us is sanctification. That means to be set apart, to be improved for his purposes. And as you read the New Testament, you understand that God's priority in his people is their character and the behavior that comes out of their character. The behavior is the proof of the character. He's interested in who you are inside. He's interested in changing his people from the inside out so that 
they can better show his glory. That's the priority. Now, where people fall into a trap and into trouble with the Old Testament is when they go into these late chapters of Deuteronomy and they start claiming these promises for themselves. Look out for that language. When people are claiming a promise of God, it's probably one of these promises given to the Israelites who live in the promised land. And the problem we have is that we are, number one, not Israelites, most of us, and number two, not living in the promised land under that covenant. And so it's critically important for us to understand what applies to us and what does not. Just like Jesus came to do miracles to prove that he had the power and authority to forgive sins, so in the Old Testament, God puts temporal physical blessings on his people Israel to show that he is capable of doing the greater blessings. The New Testament blessings are greater than the Old Testament blessings. It is better to be a good person than to have nice stuff. It is better to have eternal life than have all the greatest riches the world has to offer. And it is better to have peace in your soul than it is to have peace at your border. Don't you see all the New Testament promises are these intangible things about the soul, about the character of the person. Now, I want to explain natural law, what the uh, old systematic theologians used to call natural law is simply this, that sin and godly living seem to have built-in curses and blessings with them. Because I assure you, if you go out and commit adultery, you're inviting chaos into your life. And many of you have already experienced this. The chaos of a broken home and the difficulty and that, that comes with it and raising the kids and everything else in this kind of situation. We understand how addiction or overindulging in certain things can destroy a person's finances or even their life or the lives of people around them. We understand these things. But also there's a blessing too that if you avoid those things, just naturally you're going to avoid that kind of trouble in your life. That if you're living a godly life, you're not wasting your money on foolishness and all of a sudden you seem to prosper. But this is just what we call the natural law. There is no guarantee for the Christian to have any of the things that the Israelites were promised for being good in the land. The most that were promised is, are the necessities of life there in the Sermon on the Mount. Read it. And we are promised, on the other hand, we're actually promised tribulation. Jesus says, know for sure that in this world you're going to have tribulation. But, he says, I have overcome the world. And so while our lives don't have the kind of conditions on them that the Israelites did, Ours is far better. If we abide in him, he abides in us. The presence of God is the ultimate blessing ever. Remember what Moses said, you know, to, to God, um, you know, the, the people of Israel had acted badly. They had engaged in idolatry. They had basically rebelled against God while Moses was with God on the mountain getting the law. And they had rebelled against him. And God says, you know what? I'm a white mouth. And 
I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, you can't do that because the, the nations will all hear about it. And they'll find out, you know, that, that you're not the God that we all thought you were and, and everything else. And, and Moses says, you can't do that. Well, of course, that was kind of a test for Moses because God was never going to do that. But he put Moses in that position to express those things, to realize those things. But then God says, okay, well, go on. I'll send you into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And he goes, if you don't go with us, don't take us at all. And that was really profound that he understood the presence of God was better than anything. And what did Moses ultimately ask for when he was with God, when he had been acting faithfully for God, that he had God, seen God and, and personally by his hand done these tremendous miraculous things to bring the people out of Israel. And what does he say to God as a request? He says, show me your glory. He wanted more of God. He didn't want wealth or position or influence or anything like that. He wanted more of the Father. And the Lord showed him more. Now, he couldn't show him his full glory because Moses couldn't handle it. As it was, he came down off the mountain. He freaked everyone out because he shone. It says his face shone. It freaked everyone out. They're like, you got to put a veil over that. What we're talking about in the New Testament, God is faithful to keep his promises and his promises in the New Testament are better because they are the things of eternal life. The ultimate promise is resurrection, is eternal life with Christ. And the promise of the New Testament is this, that God works all things to the good of those who are who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works all those things to good. In other words, God is constantly working everything in the universe in order to fulfill the promises he has for his people. This is the message. We have better promises, eternal life. And this is when it starts to make sense. Look, anyone can promise eternal life. Any religion can promise nirvana. Any of them can do that. Because here's the thing, when does it come? Well, it comes after you're dead. Well, okay, well, that guy believed and he died. Did he get eternal life? Well, I don't know. He hasn't come back and told us. <laughs> so you see why now God had to do so much, hundreds of years of prophecies and typologies and everything else, and then fulfill all these hundreds of things when Jesus came to prove, look, what I did and I'm telling you, I can give you eternal life. And we're looking at all that he did. And we're looking at what he offers. And we go, I believe you because of what he's done. God proved himself through these temporal promises to Israel as the ultimate promise keeper. Because the plan he's unfolding is about to offer a whole lot more stuff we can't really even understand and stuff that he can't really show us. So God says, look what I did for these people, despite all the difficulty, all the obstacles, all the hundreds of years of, of, of whining and wrestling with them and dealing with them. Now look what I plan to do for you. There's my resume. There's my evidence. I've raised my son from the dead. So here is the offer. I set before you life and death. He's making the same offer today. Life eternal, beginning right now 
at the rebirth that his spirit does within us. A rebirth that cannot be seen by the eyes, but is far better than any temporal blessing of health and wealth that is available to us. Now, some people might say, now, wait a minute. The Israelites kind of got ripped off because if all this eternal life and salvation and stuff is only in Jesus Christ, they only were offered these things going into the promised land, these temporary things, things that were ultimately fleeting, things that they ultimately corporately forfeited. Because think about this. Do you realize that if you're a faithful Israelite and you're doing anything, everything perfectly right and all the rest of the Israelites are doing badly and end up getting everyone thrown into exile and you lose all your stuff because they did badly, that's not fair. That's why we go to Hebrews 11 and we understand those that believed could inherit eternal life through the promises of God fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. If they obeyed God in this, it shows that they had faith and they had faith in the one who would fulfill it all, Jesus Christ. Remember he said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. Well, that's important. The first thing we understand is that God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. And secondly, God still offers life or death today. So take your chance. Are you going to believe? See, the history upon which all Western civilization is built upon bears witness of these things. And the life, Jesus Christ, that would come into the world that we would forever change our calendars by, that we count our years by, a man who so changed the world that he could not have been a mere man. We're going to believe that. The moral framework that is set forth in the scripture, the moral framework that accords with our conscience and accords with the pattern of the created order. Are you going to believe that? Or not. See, what we have here is God is the ultimate presupposition that explains all morality, the existence of logic and reason. And without him, if we believe that the universe had a random and chaotic beginning, why is there any order to it at all? Why can I say a word and you understand it? These are things of order. These are things of communication. These are things of the image of God in us. We're different than the rest of the creation, or at least we should be. But some have degraded themselves to the point of animals. Why? Because they rejected this. They rejected all the order. They rejected the author of life itself and therefore have rejected life. Will we believe them and their chaos and their theory of randomness and purposelessness in the world? Or will we believe the self-sacrificing Savior who came and walked among us and suffered in every way that we do and even more, who taught perfectly, who lived perfectly, who fulfilled countless prophecies written before his birth, or will we not believe him? What will it be? Life or death? 
Will we choose life or will we choose the hopelessness of our own design and our own contrived ideas? A life lived without reference to God and therefore no explanation of why we exist, why there's love or hate or morality or logic or reason, that is a life without hope. See, without God, the God of the Bible, and understanding the sin of mankind, this world can make no sense whatsoever. That's where some choose to live. They choose to live outside of sense, outside of reason, in a hopeless universe with no purpose and no hope. But God has given us all we need to believe. He's given us more than sufficient proof of who he is. The only thing to hold us back is our own pure rebellion. Just as the Bible reveals about us. What holds us back from believing in Jesus Christ and taking this free gift of eternal life in him is nothing more than a stubborn refusal to turn toward life, and therefore, by default, we choose death. As the uh, band Rush said, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Which will it be for you, life or death, good or evil? Make your decision known today to a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, and they can help you understand these things. Let us close then in a word of prayer. Father God, we praise your name this day, and we thank you so much for this created order that screams your truth. But Lord, we understand in our blindness, in our willful rebellion to you, we have turned away from those things. We don't see them. We don't even understand what it means when you say that that you're revealed in all of creation. But we do understand that you sent Jesus Christ and that he came proclaiming life and that he came claiming to fulfill all of this stuff we read about in the Old Testament. Lord, may we be found among the faithful like those Israelites that believed you and lived their life according to your plan in the hope and expectation of the fulfillment of your great promises. So let us. Let us respond to what we've learned today by turning to you, turning to life, repenting of our sin, turning from them to to not desire to do them anymore, but turning to you, the author of life, to save us from the penalty of those things, to cleanse us from what remains in us, Lord, and to bring us to yourself, to the ultimate promise of fellowship with you, like Adam and Eve had who walked in the garden but yet so much more, for they didn't know you as their savior, and we can. Lord, help us catch a glimpse of the weight of that truth today. And may we, with your help, choose life. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank you for being with us today. 
and I invite you to interact with us. Uh, you can go to our website, to the blog page, you can get notes to learn more about these things, but also you can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. I invite you to do so. Those will be personally answered. Uh, they will not be overlooked. It will be something that we'll take very seriously in, in proclaiming this truth. Our intention is not to try to get you to come here. Chances are you're at some distance from us. Our intention is simply to proclaim this message of truth and help you understand and embrace it and help you to live this life in Christ for all that it's worth. So please feel free to contact us uh, at any time at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. May God bless you tremendously this week.